Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm Robin. And I'm John. Together, we research and break down complex and timely topics facing our society, and we bring you our findings every week. Our promise to you is to bring you honest analysis backed by research, to skew our bias towards what could be factually supported, and to try and make it clear when we're giving our opinion versus speaking about actual research. Naturally, we're human. We have blind spots and biases, and they will show through. But our goal isn't to convince you to think any certain way. We want to give everyone a foundational understanding of these complicated topics so that together we can discuss and address them in a thoughtful and beneficial way. Because of the topics we cover, some of our episodes may get heavy, and some topics might seem divisive. But we believe that, even on these issues, common understanding can be found. And we hope that those of you listening agree. We don't accept that the current state of society is the way it must be. Together, through discussion and on common ground, we can build a better world for ourselves and future generations. So we suggest getting comfortable and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside. We're going to dive into another conundrum and kick off another series. We're bringing our focus back to the political realm again as we return to a topic that we've covered a little bit before, because there's just so much happening right now with it. And honestly, it has the potential to reshape the United States for the next decade or more. And it's already begun. But it's not exactly happening in one place. Like many of the changes in our world, it's happening in a hundred different ways across the United States. But they're all coordinated with the same goal in mind. Make voting harder and winning an election easier. Oh, and overturning a potential loss easier. At least for one party. (laughs) Unnecessarily biased, maybe. But then, the way these things are framed are meant to be sold in broad daylight, even packaged as part of campaign platforms and advertised. We'll run through what's happening and why we think we can make this claim and still stick to the the promise of wanting to cut to the truth of a matter without undue bias. It's likely one of the most important discussions we've had on this show in a while, at least when it comes to long-term impacts. If you're new to the show this week, please understand that we generally don't make sweeping claims about the nature of what we're discussing. And we try to save the issuing of our opinions for discussions that come near the end of the episode so that we can get the information out first, or at least flag it when we're giving our opinion unnecessarily. We know this is a bit longer than our usual disclaimer at the beginning of a show, but we came out of the gates with a pretty bold claim on this one, and we wanted to make it clear that we're acknowledging that up front. But we find the arguments pretty compelling, and we think that you will too. Still, we promise to present as much of a balanced argument as we can for what's going on and why. Broadly, this series is going to focus on the various pieces of legislation around voting, both nationally and on the state and local levels. You've probably heard parts of some of the things we're going to talk about, such as the new voting laws enacted by Georgia, but you probably haven't heard all of it. In fact, there are nearly 20 states in which voting restrictions have already passed at least one step of the legislative process, and over 300 voting restriction bills have been introduced in state legislatures this year. 
Now, this is part of a reactionary wave in Republican-held legislatures across the nation. The constant refrain that the election was stolen has led to a push to rewrite election laws so that they benefit Republican candidates. These laws include efforts like new barriers to voting, especially barriers to mail-in ballots, uh, changing electoral college and judicial election rules, restricting citizen-led ballot initiatives, outlawing private donations that provide resources for administering elections, and although it's not legislation itself, uh, efforts to block legislation that would limit partisan districting. Here's where things get tricky and where we acknowledge the reality that we frequently bring up. The effects of any particular action, law, or plan aren't always easy to tease out. And there's not a lot of evidence one way or the other that laws like these mentioned above are going to hurt one party or help another. Sometimes an action that makes things more difficult causes the intended target to work even harder to overcome the obstacle, which ultimately makes that backfire. But even if these laws don't have the cataclysmic effect on voter turnout that some of these doomsday prophets foresee, and let's be honest, things are rarely as bad as the most fearful would have us believe, the morally correct thing to do, we think, is to draw the potential problems out in the open so that they can be addressed. If a law does restrict voting access, even if real numbers of voters don't go down, that law is still unjust. Put another way, it's wrong to allow things passed with ill intent, even if the end effect isn't as bad as we feared. Allowing the continuation of laws and rules that have disparate impacts on various population groups, no matter how small, is how we ended up with systems that systemically disadvantage massive portions of our population. Further, the context in which these changes are being passed does allow a glimpse at the reasoning behind the sudden concern for quote-unquote election security. Roughly half of the voting restrictions that have been introduced regulate absentee voting. The states being targeted are disproportionately swing states, and this surge in legislation has only occurred since the 2020 election. And though some of the legislation has been introduced by independents and Democrats, and we're not going to pretend otherwise, the overwhelming majority has been introduced by Republicans. We'll get to many of the issues uh, inherent in this discussion uh, as we progress through the series. Today, though, we're going to focus on one specific aspect of election manipulation. I don't know, maybe one of the oldest ones, aside from just out and out not letting people vote. Right. Um, and that is gerrymandering. There's a pretty specific reason that we wanted to start here in our discussion of voting restriction and voter rights. Gerrymandering is the underlying foundation that allows for the success, even the introduction, of much of the legislative work that we're going to talk about in the rest of the series. You see, Gerrymandering, by definition, is the intentional manipulation of election districts with the goal of making it easier to get candidates from one party elected and more difficult for candidates from the other. Or, in the rare case that there's a viable third-party presence, other parties. It is, essentially, a way for politicians to choose their voters instead of the voters choosing their representatives. There are a variety of ways that politicians engage in the practice of gerrymandering. 
minimizing or maximizing the political power of groups based on age, race, income, insert your favorite demographic here. But at the root of most of these things is the desire to gain power for one party or another. And that's where we think the heaviest importance lies for this topic. You'll hear us use the term partisan gerrymandering fairly often in this episode. And we're doing that to clearly communicate that the motivation for manipulating these districts is to gain that partisan advantage, rather than to prop up prejudice or discrimination simply for their own sake. If we talk about politicians concentrating black voters into one district or dividing evangelical voters into many districts, it's with the understanding that they're maneuvering for partisan advantage. And we'll get more into the technicalities of how parties gerrymander, that's a weird verb, in a little bit. But to put it bluntly, the goal here is to waste as many votes for the other party as possible. Sometimes this means dividing districts to diffuse strong support for one party. Sometimes it means redrawing lines to maximize party support in one area. And it's really, really effective. As evidenced by the 2012 elections for the U.S. House of Representatives, referred to as the great gerrymander in one journal article we read, uh, in which Democratic candidates across the country won 1.5 million more votes than Republican candidates, but Republican candidates won 33 more seats, which gave them majority control of the House. It was the first time in 40 years that the party who won the most votes in the election did not also win the most seats in the House. Now, this is particularly alarming because while the Senate is meant to give equal representation to every state, regardless of population size, and the presidency utilizes the Electoral College to uh, poorly (laughs) attempt to level the playing field between smaller and larger populations, the House is pretty explicitly meant to represent the population demographics of the country on a more granular level a little more accurately. That's why seats are allocated based on the U.S. Census. More people means more representatives in the House. This is supposed to balance the outsized power uh, sparsely populated states like Wyoming have in the Senate. In an ideal situation, legislation has to pass in both the more representative and less representative chambers of Congress. But when you have a 1.5 million vote disparity between the majority and the minority parties in Congress, well, there's something rotten in Denmark or DC. And this process would be concerning if it only applied to federal elections. But the most troubling part about it is that it applies to state legislature elections as well. This means that when these lines are drawn to favor one party or another, the effect on representation for a state population can be far-reaching. But more on that in a little bit. Right now, it's time for a history lesson. Picture with me, if you will, a mythical creature its body similar to a dragon, long and lithe with taloned toes and a barbed tail, its neck long like a sea serpent of sorts, its head is small, almost an extension of its neck, but with a hooked beak. 
If your preferred listening platform supports our episode art, you will have seen its likeness already. This fearsome creature is none other than the gerrymander. Though now we've taken to using the softer J sound, this just feels like a a natural point to open discussion on the GIF versus JIF debate. But no, no, I think we just have to leave that for another day. But we're not going to leave it for another day because it's GIF. Well, I agree. So we might have to leave it because there's nothing to debate because there's no reason. Not between the two of us. Not between the two of us, but the creator who said it was GIF is objectively wrong. And that's the breakdown on that. Yeah. Fact. Fact. Settled. No opinion there. No sources necessary. He is just wrong. All right. Sorry. Back to the gerrymander. (laughs) Right. So though we've now taken to using that softer J sound, it is this very same creature that gave rise to the topic of today's discussion. In March of 1812, the Boston Gazette ran this image as a political cartoon depicting a new species of monster created from the outlines of a strangely contoured Massachusetts voting district that Jeffersonian Republicans had drawn up to benefit their party. Then-Governor and future Vice President Elbridge Gary signed off on the plan and accidentally tied his future legacy to one of the hallmarks of shifty political shenanigans. I mean, thankfully for him, at least we've mispronounced it for so long that he could probably claim plausible deniability. But long before good old Elbridge lent his last name to the process, manipulating voting districts for political advantage was... Now, standard practice. In 18th century England, political operatives created rotten boroughs that housed only a few eligible voters so that politicians could effectively just buy their votes and gain parliament seats. Once colonists laid their claim to the United States, the same practices influenced their early voting districts because, as we have seen in the United States, precedent influences the present. What you have done before informs what you are doing now. And there is no way to completely decouple the past from the present and overcome all of the mistakes of the past. I don't know what specifically this could be referring to, (laughs) but... No, nothing. We don't know. Just a food for thought whenever somebody tells you that the systems that we currently operate under can't possibly have some sort of, I don't know, systemic bias towards one group over another. I mean... Anyway, we did a whole, whole, several, the longest series we've ever done on (laughs) systemic racism. The first, first, first systemic racism, the first four episodes, like... And then a random one after that. It's like 12 hours total of content, guys, because we used to do this for two hours at a time. (laughs) We are all welcome for the decision to shorten this down Mm -hmm. to one. Anyway, back on track. The evidence that politicians in late 18th and early 19th century Virginia, North Carolina, and South Carolina drew districts to benefit some candidates over others is pretty compelling. Still, the district drawn in that 1812 Massachusetts map 
was the most egregious documented up to that point. Politicians were much bolder than they had been before, contorting districts into strange shapes, illogical shapes, in pursuit of their party's gain. It worked pretty damn well, too. In that election, the Jeffersonian Republicans received roughly 49% of the vote, but they won 29 of the 40 available <laughs> seats in the state Senate. So you got less than half mm-hmm. of the vote, but won almost three-fourths of the seats. Right. Like, people don't do this because it's fun. People do this because it works. It works scary well. Right. Although, interestingly enough, their plan did essentially backfire on them. There was some pretty substantial backlash, and the very next year, the Federalists regained control of the state legislature. Ironically, it was the Jeffersonian Republicans' super skinny, thin-drawn districts that allowed them to lose control with just a small shift in political opinion. And then, of course, once they were back in power, the Federalists redrew the districts. (laughs) Because that's what you do. That's what you do. Yeah. Though gerrymandering continued after the situation in Massachusetts, its popularity really ebbed and flowed based on the intensity of the two-party competition in any area at any given time. Well, that is until black men won the right to vote after the Civil War. Then it was time to... Can't can't have that. (laughs) I mean... I may just be a small-town country lawyer. Right. But even I know... I mean, what was it? It was the Washington, D.C. episode where we talked about the fact that basically they were willing to completely disenfranchise everybody in D.C. in order to keep black men from voting. So um, cut off the nose to spite the face. Exactly. So that's when people decided that's when political operatives decided that it was time to take things, quote, unquote, up notch. And that is a quote from Thomas Hunter, who is a political science professor at the University of West, West Georgia. Um, he really decided that that up a notch was the most scientific measurement of how far up they were willing to take it. So it's a little more than a scotch, right? a little less than a tick. You know, it's just a notch. Just a notch. And they especially kicked it up in southern states where districts were drawn to maximize the advantage for the Democratic Party, which was supported by most white southern voters. And yes, we know that that is a weird sentence to say these days. If you want to know why, we can talk about the Democratic Party being basically the party of racists back in the late 1860s. Uh, There's a super awesome historian out there who just started her own podcast. Her name is Dr. Heather Cox Richardson, and she, um, on her Facebook page and in her Substack newsletter and now on her podcast, talks a lot about that particular transition time. So if you want to dive deep into the history of it, she spins a great story. Gosh, it's very interesting. Has a lot to do with Dixie Kratz. <laughs> yes, exactly. Which, Which is, is a fun like, word. It's an say. awesome word. <laughs> okay, so and the most popular way for them to do this kind of shifting to get around the populations of black men was to concentrate as many of their black voters as possible into one district so that the rest of the districts in the area would have white majorities and win more seats. So, for example, in 1882, South Carolina created a long boa constrictor shaped district into which it concentrated all of its black voters, who made up a majority of the state's population at the time, so that every other district in the state had a white majority. Gerrymandering in the U.S. South faded for about 60 years, thanks to the 
kindness of the lawmakers and the general mm-hmm. public. No, that's not what happened at all. Um, it was actually you. It's actually because you don't really need to gerrymander if you keep the people from voting in other ways. So things like poll taxes and lynchings and threats of violence and other forms of oppression for keeping black people and immigrants away from the polls. They don't show up. You really don't care how the district is drawn. In fact, some states didn't change their districts at all during that time. But then came the redistricting revolution under Supreme Court of the United States. I wanted to say that. Now I'm going to say SCOTUS (laughs) Chief Justice Warren. And that's when the court ruled that all state voting districts should have roughly equal populations and that states must adjust their federal congressional districts after each census so that each of the members of the House represents roughly the same number of people. There was a brief period after that time when legislation and court rulings helped ensure that voters were more evenly represented in their state legislatures and the House. But, of course, that would not last. Because then came the advent of the personal computer, and, well, once computing technology took off, it got really easy for political movers and shakers to strategically map out districts to benefit whichever party was paying the bills while still staying inside the lines of quote-unquote representation. One very famous example of this is the I-85 district. It is officially North Carolina's 12th district, which essentially, or it was, it was officially North Carolina's 12th district, which essentially ran along the interstate highway and at one point was actually narrower than the highway itself. Right, because, you know, you got to account for all those North Carolinians who live on the actual on, highway? Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, you don't have to mow asphalt, so it's very... Right? <laughs> it's a big time saver. Plus, you're just out of your driveway in traffic. Um, your driveway is traffic. <laughs> That's the very brief history of, of gerrymandering. There is so much more to it. Legal battles, back and forth, and all sorts oh, of yeah. stuff. We literally... I'm pretty sure that it could be its not just its own episode, but like its own entire podcast going over the history of of, of gerrymandering. Oh yeah, um, absolutely. But we we really just kind of wanted to give an overview of the history of it so that you get the idea, number one, where the term came from, because that picture is absolutely ridiculous. It's so famous. Yes. And number two, so that you could have that kind of basic background as we move forward and talk about things like, you know, perfecting your gerrymandering technique. Well, yeah, let us talk about that. How does one gerrymander? Hmm. Teach me how to gerry. Teach me, teach me how to... No, that doesn't really work. You know the... <laughs> you know that old saying, it takes a whole village to redraw an election district? No? Well, let us enlighten you. And boy... Does it ever take a village? When district lines are redrawn, it often takes a computer or several, plus redistricting consultants, political cartographers, and legislative staff 
just to account for the increases or decreases in population in each area. Though the U.S. Supreme Court requires that districts representing each chamber of a state legislature and for the House of Representatives to be roughly equal in population, with an expressed purpose of trying to provide the people with quote-unquote fair and effective representation, the drawing of districts is rarely ever focused solely on how many people live where. According to political science professor Richard Ingstrom, the primary interest of many of the people participating in the redistricting process is much more, maybe even blatantly, political. Though they do technically satisfy the one-person, one-vote rule established by SCOTUS, these equipopulous gerrymanders do more to hinder that fair and effective representation idea than they do to support it. Ideally, when nonpartisan experts and analysts look at the districts within a state to determine whether partisan gerrymandering is an issue, they're looking for a sort of baseline called proportionality or proportional representation. Explained simply, proportional representation exists when each party wins a percentage of the seats up for grab in that area that roughly matches the percentage of votes that their candidates received. So, to illustrate this idea using completely made-up math, which is my favorite kind of math, yes. if there were 100 seats in an election and each party received 50% of the votes, then each party should win 50 seats. If one party won 83% of the votes, then they should win 83 of the seats, give or take a few for statistical variance. The idea of proportional representation has long been held up as a standard of measurement for redistricting. One of the earliest and most authoritative scholars on the topic made the assertion that when political parties win seats in legislatures roughly proportional to their share of the popular vote, that ideal is the very core of the term fair representation. And SCOTUS upheld that idea in the 1973 decision Gaffney v. Cummings, when they held that it's acceptable to enact a political fairness principle in redistricting that achieves a rough approximation of the statewide political strengths of the two major parties. In other words, if a state wants to redraw a districting plan that reflects the political affiliations of the people, the court is cool with it. But that's not what they do. They do all of these very technical things. Well... I mean, when you think about them, they're not actually that technical. Surprisingly, at least to me, the techniques that they use to accomplish these redistricting manipulations are really pretty simple in concept. So are you ready for a rundown of modern gerrymandering tactics? I'm ready. So cool. I'm ready. I actually... I would say the te- the the, uh, the ideas are simple. I still think you're you, or rather, I think you were right to say that they are highly technical, though, because the only thing, the only reason these things can be accomplished are because of modern, like data tracking techniques. You know, right. So, uh, the ability to access and parse just massive amounts of data. You couldn't. I don't think you could do this on pencil and paper um somebody could. so the first technique so, hmm? somebody could somebody out there 
well, has that kind of a math brain, and I'm a little jealous of it. If that's you, I'm I mean, jealous I guess of they, you. They did do that in Massachusetts to coin the term, I suppose. But I also feel like the population was much smaller mm-hmm. back in the day. It may have been a lot oh, yeah. less data. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So anyway, um, the first technique they use is called cracking. And this is probably what most people think of when they think about this topic. And it basically splits a community into multiple districts so that the community can't have a significant effect on a candidate or party's success. For example, when racially motivated redistricting was more common, black communities were often divided across districts to reduce the likelihood that they would elect black or black sympathetic candidates. Um, Today, this technique is often used in densely populated urban areas, which tend to vote fairly homogeneously, 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 got there, (laughs) (laughs) which tend to vote fairly homogeneously to divide support for Democratic candidates. So when you look at a district map, you can spot cracking by looking for the convergence of multiple districts in small, densely packed areas. One uh, one example of this being done in favor of Democrats is Chicago and its suburbs. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of like points that intersect in Chicago and radiate out from the city so that the votes in the more conservative suburbs are uh, countered by the votes of the more liberal uh, urban areas in the city proper itself. Yeah. Another common tactic for professional gerrymanders is packing. This is the other really popular concept that people latch onto when they hear about gerrymandering. And packing takes all of these troublesome voters and wraps them up into one district instead of splitting them up. Packing minimizes the losses for one party by concentrating the other party's wins into just a few districts. This keeps the voters that they do want in the rest of the districts and allows the preferred party to win those. Voters in packed districts lose out on representation because no matter how many voters are in that district, they only have control over one representative seat. So if the population were spread across more districts, they could potentially influence multiple seats. When you're looking for packed districts on a map, look for densely packed areas, often with odd-shaped boundaries, surrounded by sparsely populated districts. Sometimes these packed districts are urban centers, but oftentimes they're concentrated areas of one non-explicitly political demographic or another, like immigrants or Black Americans or Hispanic and Latinx voters. Oh, here's a bonus vocabulary word. When race is involved in packing efforts, the pros call it bleaching. Wonder why that could be. I don't even know. Oh, hmm. crazy. Um, a note, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's still illegal to divide districts up based on race alone. Yeah, and we, we um, will talk about that a little bit towards the end of the episode. Yeah. Um, just since we mentioned race up here, I just wanted to say we're, we, we didn't miss that. Yeah. <laughs> There's one important distinction that goes along with that prohibition, uh, but I'm not going to say it now. I'm going to make people wait until the end. Oh, yeah. Hang in. Stay tuned. Um, 
back to how it's executed. Hijacking is another one. And this allows redistricting gurus to take out incumbents that they don't like by redrawing districts to pit them against a stronger candidate or weaken their support by separating them from their former constituents. So if you have two incumbents causing problems, you can actually pit them against each other in their own district and basically force them to have a primary race and guarantee one of them is removed from the race. So you had two candidates and last election they were in two different districts, but because we have redrawn the districts now, they're in the same district. They have to they're forced to hold a primary or unless one of them relents, I guess, drops out so that you know, one of them can become the representative for that district. Um, Obviously, though, it's a net loss to that party. Uh, When hijacking won't work, though, operatives might just resort to kidnapping. Yeah. Yeah. Just wrap them up in a trash bag and dump them in the... No, not not that kind of... Not that one. No. Um, Not in the physical sense. Most politicians draw their support, like allies and donors and... I mean, really, support can come from just name recognition. Um, They get that from the geographic political bases in which they built their careers. They know their neighbors. Their neighbors know them. Their neighbors are going to vote for them. So if redistricting operatives want to weaken their political influence, they might just redraw the representative's district to remove them from their support base. Which sounds weird because you're not like physically moving the candidate. Right. But say if they had a district that at one point was pretty squarely located in northern Virginia and that district were redrawn to stretch down one of the main highways all the way to southwest Virginia, suddenly their district is much, much larger geographically Mm -hmm. speaking. And they and the, like the people who they're going to be campaigning to get their vote have no idea who they are. And that's not really a crazy example because several of Virginia's districts basically stretch from one side of the state to the other. It's crazy. Yeah. Both the kidnapping and the hijacking separate politicians, for the most part, from that support base. And that's what makes it a whole lot easier to knock them out in a race. Oh, and we can't forget about the sweetheart gerrymander. Aww. Yeah, this is what happens when incumbent candidates from different parties are just plain happy with the way that things are. Sometimes they work together and they draw districts that help ensure that everyone who's already in office stays there. How romantic. So when we look at these techniques, any one of them alone counts as partisan gerrymandering. But you can imagine how effective these things might be collectively for swinging partisan power in one direction or another. And whenever you have consultants and operatives and politicians manipulating representation for the purpose of gaining political control, it's only logical that the will of the people will be much more difficult to express. And that's precisely why we felt the need to break this down at the beginning of our series on voter rights and representation, because we believe that research-based evidence supports the assertion that partisan gerrymandering interferes with the democratic process in the United States in a way that should be considered unacceptable. Gerrymandering is 
completely against the ideals of democracy. It discourages competition because why would anyone run for an office in a district where they have an extreme disadvantage? Running for public office is time-consuming, exhausting, and very expensive. It would be a Sisyphean task for a ruby-red Republican to run for office in the Sapphire electorate of Washington, for example. Now, imagine if Washington had been sliced up so that there were two blue voters for every one voter in a given district. That would be the cracking that we talked about earlier. If the task seemed hard before, that would make it downright impossible. And that means that gerrymandering leads to bad representation for U.S. citizens. For us, for you and I, and, well, for our international listeners, hope, hopefully gerrymandering isn't a big deal in your country. Right. But if it's there, it, it, it affects your representation, too. You know, what if in our hypothetical example, Washington were drawn fairly and it turned out a Republican stood a chance of winning in an area, geographic area that previously they couldn't. The resultant government would be more democratic then because the constituents would have an actual representative in the government. But gerrymandering trades a quote, more perfect union for cynical calculus with an end game of controlling as much power as possible. The impact of gerrymandering cannot be overstated, I don't think. Currently, it's most prevalent in states under Republican control due to the fact that Republicans cleaned house in the 2010 election. <laughs> no pun intended. Oh, yeah. <gasps> So, but why? Why was this particular round of elections so important in 2010? Why did they work so hard to achieve such a strong majority? Well, 2010 was the year of the previous U.S. Census. So when Republicans took control of several state legislatures that year, that means that they took control of the reins to draw the redistricting maps. And the National Republican Party poured a lot of money and expertise and time into state-level races with the explicit purpose of gaining control over redistricting. And that was something that the Democratic Party had not prioritized. As of 2019, the most gerrymandered House maps were in North Carolina, Michigan, Ohio, and Texas. Notice how those are all currently Republican-held states, and they are often considered swing states. On the flip side, Maryland and Illinois, and to a lesser degree California, are considered the most gerrymandered Democratic-controlled states. On a strategic note, this highlights the results of the specific push by Republicans to control the map redraw in 2018. None of the Democratic-controlled, quote-unquote, most gerrymandered states were battlegrounds in 2020. All of the Republican-held ones were, and the election essentially hinged on the Wisconsin outcome at one point. I'm not sure I need to remind any listeners of the days post-election, of the days of post-election drama after last November's elections, but for the historians listening to this in 3025, basically the entire world was watching what happened in Wisconsin for what might be the first time 
ever. And you have a note that says sorry to any cheeseheads in the audience, but I'm from Minnesota, so I am not sorry for a single thing that I just said. <laughs> so salty. <laughs> Nobody's watching you, Aaron Rodgers. But that was part of the plan. Back on task. Bring it back in. Bring it back in. That was that was part of the plan. That was the plan, right? Wisconsin State Assembly members are all elected every two years. Historically, Wisconsin has pretty reliably swung back and forth from Republican to Democratic control in statewide elections for governor and U.S. senator and, and other offices. But the Republicans controlled Wisconsin in 2011 when the district maps were redrawn. In the next election, which would usually see, you know, a minor shift in power or maybe a modest gain at best, right? The Republicans won a supermajority. A supermajority means that Republicans held far more than half the seats in the assembly. A standard benchmark is two-thirds of the Congress or the assembly, whatever, but there's no real hard and fast ratio that I could find. Um, often it's used when one party doesn't need any support from the other to pass legislation, but this isn't necessarily the definition. It's not a bad one. It's just not exact. Regardless, that in and of itself was odd. It was strange. Normally, swing states don't find the power division to be so off balance, or they wouldn't really be swing states, right? They'd be Alabama. Mm -hmm. But... What really makes this particular instance stand out is that Democrats that year won every single statewide office. So on a statewide level, Democrats had more support. Democrats garnered more votes overall in the state, but the districts had been drawn such that Republicans were winning local elections which means that Republicans ended up controlling the quote-unquote Congress of Wisconsin, the Assembly, despite the election of a Democratic everything else. Ay, ay, ay. And that is a microcosm of the problem because on a national level in the United States, Republicans haven't won the majority vote for president in like the last 30-some-odd years, 33 years. Mm-hmm. They've the popular vote has always gone or not always, but the popular vote has gone to the Democrat. And yet Republicans keep winning the presidency, keep winning control of the House because of the ability to split these districts up. Yeah. So if that doesn't make you nervous. And. Before we go, we have spent the last hour or so outlining the negative effects of gerrymandering on voter representation and the people's ability to express their will. But we have not addressed whether or not there are any pro-gerrymandering positions. <laughs> yeah, and that's because in all of the research that we've done for this episode, we only found one. And it's not really a pro-partisan manipulation argument. It's more of a sometimes you read, we draw districts with a specific intention and that's not a bad thing argument. But understanding this perspective is important for rounding out the conversation and avoiding misunderstanding. So here is that premise. 
gerrymandering can guarantee representation for an otherwise underrepresented group. The basis of this argument relies on the packing technique that we talked about earlier, where significant numbers of supporters for one party are packed into a single district to concentrate their influence. But for the purposes of this argument, and what's really crucial, is that the goal is not to dilute their influence elsewhere. The goal is to guarantee them consistent representation by concentrating enough members of this group into a district to effectively guarantee that they have a majority vote and that their interests will be represented as a result of their votes. One such use for this concept is the majority-minority district. The Equal Protection Clause and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 both prohibit the redrawing of districts in a way that would improperly dilute the votes of a racial or language group, provided that there is significant enough cohesion that they would vote collectively. This is what I was talking about earlier and that Robin told me to shush on. Um, this means that in areas where populations of minorities are high, Districts may need to be drawn in such a way as they create an effective political majority in order to avoid diluting the votes of the minorities in the area. Another use for this idea is to concentrate members of a political minority into a singular district in order to allow them effective representation in states where they may not otherwise achieve it. However... <laughs> If you can find any example of that particular methodology being applied in the real world, we would love to see yeah, it. Yeah, please find because it. Because we could not, we couldn't find it in the real world. It was only ever used ideologically, like in conversation about the potential benefits of gerrymandering. Um, no, no actual real, right. <laughs> like Robin Hood gerrymandering. Yeah, no, it was 100% like that. Oh, you know, you know what you could do with it though? Yeah. Yeah, this is why we can't. We can't change okay. things because we could do... Yeah, yeah, right. You could potentially harm minority groups. Right. Mm, I want to know who's making that argument because I have a pretty good idea who's making that <laughs> argument. <laughs> right. But, but like we said just a few minutes ago, this kind of action really does not fit that definition of partisan gerrymandering that we've been discussing in this episode. Because the intent is not to angle for advantage over the other party, that manipulation is what we're warning against, and it's what sets the stage for further conversation about voting rights. I want to talk about one thing, because I'm afraid people are going to listen to this hour of conversation about gerrymandering, and what they're going to take away from it is, we don't like Republicans in office. Oh yeah, we should talk about that. Which is not what we're saying mm -mm. at all. Um, I do not have a problem with a Republican being in office, like inherently or on principle. Um, there are certain issues that I have with the politics of, of Republicans at the moment, but that doesn't mean that I think they shouldn't hold office. Uh, you know, a democracy functions based on the exchange the, the good faith exchange of ideas. So we need op oppositional parties in office because they represent people who also live in this country. What the problem is, is that the way that it seems they have attained office is unfair. 
democratically unfair, not like, wow, life isn't fair, but like against the very nature of the democracy that we are supposed to be inhabiting. And that is what scares me. That is what is dangerous. And that is what cannot be allowed to continue for a healthy and functional democracy. And I think a lot of people justify it or at least turn the other cheek because they think to themselves, well, the beliefs of my party are moral and right Mm -hmm. and just. And because of that, it justifies any means to get them in power in order to keep this country on a moral and right and just path. But that's not how democracy works. Right. You don't get to just force your ideas because you really, truly, and deeply believe that they are right. The ideas have to stand on merit and the candidates have to stand on their merit and the ideas have to be exchanged and challenged and the will of the majority or the representatives of the majority in our case must be allowed to function properly otherwise we're not in a democracy we're in at best a flawed democracy but the road from flawed democracy to authoritarian regime is probably not as long as many people would like to convince themselves it is. Exactly. When we get to the place where the, the people who are getting the votes are not getting the wins, that's when we have to ask ourselves what's wrong. The issue is not who's in office because we would be giving this entire speech, we would be ranting and railing in the same way if you flip the political parties, because it doesn't matter who I agree with. It doesn't matter who John agrees with. It matters who the voters agree with. And anytime that the will of the voters is not expressed and represented in the outcome of an election, that is when we have to start looking for where things are failing in our democracy. And that's all that we want to point out. And that's, the overarching goal of this longer series about the laws, because I think, you know, personally, I see a lot of the things being attempted and being passed and it, it sounds alarm bells to me and I don't want to be an alarmist and I don't want to be one of those people who tries to fear monger in order to drive a point. But as we said at the top of the show, the arguments are very hard to ignore. That something hinky's going down here. <laughs> hinky, hinky. So, that said, if you think that we have just shot ourselves in the foot and that this boat is going down from shooting ourselves in the foot, I guess technically that would go through the bottom of a boat it too. Could. Could, theoretically. Um, you can let us know. You can do so by reaching out to us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at Fireside Breakdowns or sending us an email at firesidebreakdowns at gmail.com. If you think that we missed the mark completely, again, as always, we are open to hearing that. We'd prefer it if you have a reasonable and logical argument (laughs) and not a rant, but hey. Sometimes we rant, so... 
you know. We rant. If you want to send us a rant, I can't promise that we'll do anything other than laugh at it, but we'll probably read it. Um, as always, you can find our show notes uh, at in the link in the show description. Uh, so if you want to see our sources and what we cited on this, especially this episode, we understand that a lot of claims were made. Um, so yeah, we've got all of that up and ready for you. I think... Do we have any update about the news, a progress bar that we've been teasing these people mercilessly with? I know, I know. For the last, this is episode three, three weeks now. I feel like we should have something. They promised us something in like 10 business days, but we haven't heard anything Well, some of that, some of that is our fault because we still have some parts that we have to take care of, you and me. But I do think, I do think (laughs) that for the most part, uh, we will have exciting new things for people to look for right around podcast anniversary. Hell yeah. yeah. So that's that's some little good news. Why don't you hit us with the good, good news? The good, good news. Well, it is still June, which means it is still Pride Month. And we are still talking about important issues that impact people in the LGBTQ plus community. So our good news today The U.S. Education Department on Wednesday expanded its interpretation of federal sex protections to include transgender and gay students. And that's a move that reverses a Trump-era policy and stands against proposals in many states to bar transgender girls from school sports. In a new policy directive, the department said that discrimination based on a student's sexual orientation or gender identity will be treated as a violation of Title IX, the 1972 federal law that protects against sex discrimination in education. These protections carry the possibility of federal sanctions against schools and colleges that fail to protect gay and transgender students. Under the federal law, students who face sex discrimination can bring complaints to the education department or federal courts. Schools found to have violated Title IX can face a range of penalties as severe as total loss of federal education funding, although the Education Department has never dealt that punishment out. But still, knowing that 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 is a potential recourse to protect these students, that's that's some great good news. That is good news. That is a a large sword of Damocles over anybody who would... uh, try to discriminate right um we haven't done it but we could yep 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 and speaking of we haven't done it but we could i think we've got sometime down the road a discussion about uh transgender girls in school sports because that is a very complicated topic a lot of strong feelings so many strong feelings a lot of there's a lot of science for that too. Though. There is a so lot of science. There's gonna there's a lot of research that goes into that conversation, uh, and the interesting thing is, I find that people I talk to have a lot of feelings, and they you would think that they would be conflicting feelings. Like the same person has a bunch of different feelings, and they're all across the board. So that means it's definitely worth exploring, even though there's no way that we're probably going to come to a conclusion at the end of that particular episode. No, but hopefully better information exactly but robin we also had some surprising good news yes. delivered today before we recorded this we did president biden today signed a bill to recognize juneteenth the celebration to commemorate the end of chattel slavery in the united states as a federal holiday i mean it is two days from now so it's cutting it a little bit close 
for those of us who, you know, might have requested holiday time. But, <laughs> you know, it is what it is. Juneteenth. I mean, I'm. Yeah. I'm taking tomorrow You're, off now. So Are you? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I was probably, well, no, I wasn't going to, but I do actually, they, my company gave leave for that. That's really, really like cool. Uh, pretty cool. I'm pretty sure that the people who are running HR at my particular company will realize that this happened next week. So <laughs> definitely, definitely. If you don't know what Juneteenth is, Juneteenth is celebrated annually on the 19th of June to mark the date that some of the last enslaved people in the Confederacy became free. When President Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation in 1862 to free enslaved people in Confederate states, it was not until two and a half years later that many black people who were still held in bondage in Texas were told that the order had actually freed them. Texas's isolation from the rest of the country and remote landscape kept Union soldiers from enforcing the message as quickly there as they had been able to elsewhere. So it wasn't until... Months later, with the passage of the 13th Amendment, that slavery was abolished on a federal level, not just in states that had aligned themselves with the Confederacy. Which, you know, it's a weird thought and not exactly apropos to this conversation, but it goes to show how the Internet is could be a, a tool for equality an incredible tool yeah. for equality because if the internet had existed during the civil war there wouldn't have been a 30 month delay right somebody well, would have found that out yeah there likely wouldn't have been a 30 month mm -hmm. delay i can't obviously can't guarantee but like just the the transmission of information yeah alone would have sped that up but didn't exist not the circumstances we the world we lived in uh what does matter is that um for a very long time, there has been a sort of, I don't want to say resentment, but a detachment from the 4th of July, Independence Day, for communities of color. Mm -hmm. From what I understand, I am the whitest dude you know, um, but I try to educate myself. <laughs> um, and so <laughs> because of that detachment, like a lot of people... <laughs> It was it was Frederick Douglass, right, who said, "What does what does July Fourth mean to a slave? Right. What does American independence mean to a slave?" Right. So a lot of uh, families and communities of color would celebrate um, like Juneteenth, the nineteenth of June, as their sort of Independence Day. Right. Now it's clearly not one to one comparison, and there's like a really bad faith argument being made that like, well, now there's going to be. Uh, you know, confusion and, and division and identity politics up around celebrating Juneteenth or the 4th of July. And it's like, no, like you can recognize and, and celebrate both. Yeah. You know, they're as completely different holidays, totally different. And like for me, obviously, the holiday doesn't mean the same thing that it means to. Maybe you, Robin, <laughs> don't want to make any assumptions, but um, but like to me, it's going to be a, a yearly day to reflect on the history of the country, the progress that has been made, that needs to be made, and how how law a law or a proclamation or something being made doesn't mean the change 
will come until action is put behind it. You have to marry action with the law in order to bring about that equality, that justice, right? It wasn't just Lincoln saying no more slavery. It was Lincoln plus the Union soldiers showing up to be like, yo, he said stop. Right. So, sorry, little soapbox there. I've been reflecting on this all day long. Like, what does this mean to me as, as a white dude? Right. You know, how can I find a way to just not appropriate this as another holiday? <laughs> right. And, and not, so. not uh, celebrate it in a performative way. It's that same conversation right. that we're having about Pride Month right now. It's not about performative support for Juneteenth. It's not about all the white people rallying to say, you know, black people get their holiday. It's about understanding the significance of this day or for LGBTQ plus communities this month to recognize and address the issues that our communities are facing and and look to some celebratory accomplishments that we that we have found along the way. Pretty cool stuff. Yeah. I'm pretty stoked about it. I'm happy for. all of my friends who this would impact directly and for the nation as a whole, I think it's a good step. Agreed. So you want to take us out of here tonight? Sure. Or, oh, wait. Well, this is coming out two days late, but that being said, happy Juneteenth, everybody. Oh, yes. <laughs> we didn't even think about that one. <laughs> yeah. So happy Juneteenth to everybody who was listening. Hopefully you celebrated on the weekend. If you didn't celebrate it on the weekend, maybe you saw some people celebrating. Maybe you have awesome things to look forward to next year for Juneteenth. Um, But until we talk to you next week and continue this series on voter rights, voter restrictions, and what we can do to further democracy in the United States, take care of each other, please. (laughs) 